Father, we thank you for this time, these moments we have. We thank you for the great blessing and joy that you have ordained and designed in the church and gathering together with your people. And particularly this morning as we remember the symbolism or in the symbolism of the bread and the, and the cup, not only your death and resurrection, not only our present union with you by the Spirit, but our, in a sense, union with one another as we who commonly possess the Spirit, who call on the same Father, who trust in you, our same Lord, who anticipate the same inheritance, who live in light of the same blessing and promises that you have given to us all. And we come together as your people to worship you, to acknowledge you as Lord of heaven and earth, the only one in whom there is forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the Father, you who are, is our life and our hope and our joy. Bless our time now as we look at your word together, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, um, you need to get here early, first of all, to get a seat. So anybody who's a little crowded right now, I just want to tell you, we have quite a few people out. I'm sorry, I had that joke in my mind all morning. I had to get it out at some point. So this seemed like the best time. Well, as you know that we have uh, finished Matthew last week. We we completed after, uh, what was it, I think about eight years, we finished the book of Matthew. So we have some open space here as we think about where the Lord might lead us in the future as we will begin another book eventually. But until then... Uh, We're going to take some opportunity just to have topical messages. Yes, you can be exegetical and topical. Uh, To be expositional in your preaching does not mean that you have to begin at verse 1 and go all the way to the end of the book. It just means that you handle each text properly in its context and you relate it to the topic in a biblically faithful way. But we're going to do some topical messages uh, over the next who knows how long, at least a couple of months or so. I've Talk to a few of you. We're going to address such things as the Christian and social media, which will certainly be a hot topic, I'm sure. We're going to address some issues related to body life and particularly how we deal with confronting sin in each other's life and how we receive confrontation for sin in our own lives as we interact with one another in the body and as we do that with gentleness and love and to the glory of Christ. And we're also going to look at a few doctrinal issues along the way, do some messages on that. And this morning is along those lines. We're going to take some time just to consider the idea of biblical faith. This is, of course, not exhaustive. There's many things that we won't say, but there are some things that's good for us to set our minds on again, to think about, to remember to get back to the basics. It's like a sports team, you know, you The one who is successful understands the basics of their sport and they do them well. We as Christians want to understand the essentials of what it means to trust in Christ and to walk with him faithfully in this world. And of course at the center of all of that is the idea of faith. Faith is central to the Christian faith. In one sense it's central not only to the Christian faith but the idea The idea of faith is important in any religion, and for that matter, humanity itself has to trust in something. We are not omniscient, we are not all-knowing, we are not omnipresent. There are things that we have to, in the broadest possible sense of the word, need to take by faith. But of course, 
What Scripture means by that is something very different than how it's often portrayed and certainly very different than how it's understood in other religions. Let me give you a few ideas of some of the various ways that faith is described and particularly even the Christian faith, at least from the view of an unbeliever. Richard Dawkins describes Christian faith in this way as a blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. So in his mind, to trust in Christ and to trust in Scripture is in fact to believe contrary to everything that is observable in this world, contrary to everything that can be known with certainty, the Christian faith in his mind is to go in another direction, to throw all of that aside and decide to believe in Jesus. This is interesting. Alcohol's Anonymous describes, although they don't use the word faith, but this is how they describe it. Uh, two, two of their points in their 12 is this, that that one has to come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us. And another says that they have to make a decision to turn our will, our lives, over to the care of God as we understand Him. As we understand Him. As a matter of fact, that same idea is repeated later. It says in another instructions and some more other instructions, For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority. A loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. And again in that section, God is described as God as you understand him. If you paid just a little bit of attention to that statement, you're struck with how inconsistent and what logical nonsense is contained in it. One wonders how you can believe in a loving God or an ultimate authority, an authority that we must submit to, an authority that by implication we must yield to, an authority that by implication we must believe and respond to if there is no authoritative revelation of this God. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? God in that definition is really no more than a collection of whatever thoughts you may have about the kind of God you have imagined or the kind of God you would like to exist, the kind of God that you would like to believe in, a God, in fact, made in our own image, a God whom we define by our own authority in essence. And that kind of God may bring a kind of comfort to some people, and in the context of a group like Alcohols Anonymous or whatever, it may even bring some kind of human strength uh, to overcome a bad habit. And it may, in that sense, even produce some kind of good in a person's life. It's good to not be enslaved to alcohol and all the destruction that brings or drugs or whatever. But that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that redeems and reconciles a sinner to God. It is not a kind of faith that does the ultimate good to a human soul, to a sinner. If we go more in a Christian realm, and I use that in quotations, there's Soren Kierkegaard. You've heard that name. He was a Danish Lutheran philosopher. Now, he denied the reality of objective truth in an ultimate sense... And he focused more on the subjective or experiential realities of faith. In other words, something became true when it was experienced really and truly inside a person. 
in that sense, then there was an affirmation of that truth inwardly, and that for it became essentially true for that person, true for them. It wasn't anything outside of them that was objectively true to trust in. He didn't use this exact phrase, although he did use some of this language, but it's out of that kind of thinking that we got the term leap of faith. A leap of faith. Faith is essentially a leap out into the darkness, and the abyss of understanding, uh, but trusting in those things that cannot be known, but nonetheless can be a source of comfort and truth for the individual, even if it goes against the, la- uh, the kind of evidence that we can see. There is another kind of way that faith is viewed. This is by a man named Zane Hodges and a crew from him. He's actually a professor out at Dallas Theological Seminary. He defines faith in this way, and he gets a little closer to the Bible, though it still falls very short. But he describes faith in this way. Faith, what faith really is, he says, in biblical language, is receiving the testimony of God. It is the inward conviction that what God says to us in the gospel is true. That and that alone is saving faith. And that statement in and of itself is a helpful statement. It's a good statement. It is, in fact, a true statement. The, the, the way that Zane Hodges, for example, and we'll mention some of this a little bit later, goes astray is when faith is seen as described or understood independent from the things that a genuine faith produces. In other words, this faith that he promotes as saving faith that unites us to Christ, to his person and to his work, can be held and can be real if it is affirmed as true, though it may never produce obedience. It may never produce repentance. In fact, to require that to be true of this kind of faith is to pervert the biblical meaning of faith. That is at least in the thinking of Zane Hodges and Schaefer and others in that ilk. They then affirm that faith is nothing more, absolutely nothing more than assent to the truths of the gospel. But involves no commitment at all from the sinner to those truths. In fact, Hodges in fact goes so far as to say that someone could apostatize later in their life but still be saved. Still be saved. So what is faith biblically? What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to participate in all of the blessings that God has designed in His Son through His coming, through His life, through His death, and through His resurrection? How do we partake of these good things, these graces, or His ultimate grace in Christ? Well, we're going to consider that briefly. Again, not exhaustively, but we're going to hit a few of the main points along this line. And so we're really going to look, or I'm going to mention five aspects of faith. And we'll spend a little more time on some uh, than others. But these are the five. I'll mention them to you and then we'll go through them. First of all, just briefly to look at the terminology of faith. The words, at least in the New Testament, we'll focus on for faith. We'll note how faith is presented as essential to salvation But then we'll look more precisely on what is that faith? How do we define this faith that, in fact, marks salvation? We'll note the connection between faith and repentance and faith as it stands satisfied in Christ alone. Don't worry about 
writing those down, but there's just a way to kind of hang our thoughts as we go along. Let me first mention briefly the terminology of faith, the terminology of faith, and just bear with me, I'll mention this just briefly, but so we're just aware of the kind of terms that are used for biblical faith, at least in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are terms used that have the general idea of reliability, of faithfulness, very similar to those, of course, in the New Testament. The Old Testament actually includes as well the idea of the fear of God and the concept of faith, having a true faith in God. In the New Testament, however, there are three forms of a root term that are most commonly used. It is pistis. You've probably heard that. Pistos and pisteo. That doesn't mean a whole lot other than to say for you that these are the terms that the New Testament writers use to describe faith. The first one, and again, just bear with me, Let's get a definition in our mind. Pistis refers to this. It's translated as faith, that which evokes trust and faith. Uh, Another way it's described is a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. That's how it's commonly used. It can also be used sometimes just to speak speak of of a body of faith. When we say the Christian faith, in other words, we're referring to by that term faith, and Scripture uses it this way, as... The whole set of beliefs about God and Christ and redemption uh, packaged. It is the faith, as it were, of Christians. There's another term, pistos, which is common. And it's defined in this way as pertaining to being worthy of belief or trust. This idea is seen, for example, in Matthew 25, 21, where he says, "You, Well done, you good and you faithful slave. Well done, you good and you faithful slave. This is one who by his actions, had shown himself to be trustworthy. Trustworthy. Another form of this, or another example of that, is in John 20, 27. And this has the idea, again, of being trusting. This is pistos. In John 20, 27, Jesus says to Thomas, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be untrusting, as it were, in the testimony that you had heard about my resurrection, the testimony that you had been, had been born as witness to you, but be trusting, trusting in the reality of it. Finally, there is this one is a verb, uh, pistuo, and it means this, to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Uh, we see an example of this in 2 Thessalonians 1.10 where he says, Paul did to them, Our testimony was believed. Our testimony was believed. Another way that it's used is to entrust ourselves to an entity in complete confidence. In Acts 16.31, the call is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In other words, entrust yourself to Christ, to the truth of Christ. Believe on him and you will be saved. Okay, well, that's, those are the terms that are used. In summary, it's essentially this. Faith is trust and reliance on a person or testimony from another. Or it is a set of faith, uh, an acknowledgement of a set of truths. A set of truths. The key idea here is this. Is that faith, biblically defined and illustrated through all the examples that he gives us, is not something that's just... Without evidence. It's not something that's blind. It's not something that's vague. It's not something that is uh, unreliable. It's not something that simply is true for an individual but isn't true for others. Faith is 
a particular trust in God's revelation of himself, in his words, in his acts, and ultimately in Christ. Commenting on Jesus' words in John 20, 27, one has said this, and this is worthy of repeating. I think he captures this idea well. He says this, Thomas wasn't asked to believe without evidence. And here's the distinction. Thomas was asked to believe on the basis of the other disciples' testimony. Thomas initially lacked the firsthand experience of the evidence that had convinced them. Moreover, the reason John gives for recounting these events is that what he saw is evidence. In other words, when Thomas came and he says, Do not be believing but unbelieving, and when Jesus mentions that blessed are those who have not seen and believe, he's not saying who have not seen and believe something contrary to evidence. He's saying who have not seen and believed based on the reliable testimony of those who have seen. Do you see the difference? On a reliable witness on a reliable accounting of what God actually has said and what God actually has done. Hopefully this will unfold this a little bit more. This means that faith isn't simply a feeling. It's not a general sense of confidence about something or an idea. In other words, faith is, in terms of God's presentation of faith, is an active trust and reliance on Jesus Christ through the testimony of Him and His work by His witnesses. Remember what Jesus told his apostles in Acts 1.8? He says, what? You shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You who have been with me. You who have witnessed my life, my miracles. You have witnessed every aspect of my ministry, my resurrection, You will be my witnesses. Not witnesses to things asking for faith counter to evidence, but based on those who have actually seen these things to be true. It's faith then that fully rests on the evidence and testimony of Christ as revealed in Scripture by faithful witnesses. It's not blind trust against facts and reason, but it is trust in Christ in full accord with reason, and evidence. Now, those are big concepts, but I want to at least put that idea in your mind. Again, it's not a blind faith. It's not a general hope. It's not a faith that goes against facts and evidence, but it is completely consistent with them. In fact, faith in Christ is the only reasonable response to what can be observed and studied, that Christ, in fact, is who Scripture says He is, that he did in fact die, and that he did in fact rise again. Now, you might be thinking of one of the most common definitions of faith given in Scripture, and that's in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just read that for you. I'm going to mention it just briefly. But in Hebrews chapter 11, he says this, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, And the conviction of things not seen. Now again, some would look at that and say, well, see? Whoa, that's not helpful. He would say, see? Hey, that's the first time I've done that in nine years. That's not too bad. Now, Ted's been a pastor for 25 years, and I saw him do that once, so I feel better. Not to throw him under the bus. 
But anyway, let's hopefully it's not confused in there and uh, we don't get messed up, but we'll try to keep a train of thought here. But anyway, so Hebrews 11.1 1 is sometimes looked at by others and is used as a justification for saying, well, see, there it is. Faith is belief in things not seen. In other words, uh, it can't be something based on evidence because the writer here says himself that it's things not seen. But as that, in fact, is not what he means. Uh, let me begin by a quote by John Brown. He's an old theologian, Puritan writer. He says, I know that God, commenting on Hebrews 11.1, 1, that God created the world out of nothing, but how do I know? I did not see it, but God has told me so in a well-accredited revelation, which I believe. And by believing it, or by faith, I understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. By the word of God. In other words, the idea of the writer here in Hebrews is this. Is that the word of God, in other words, the account of God in creation. Because he'll go on to say, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of that which is visible. Things which are visible. In other words, so then we can know this thing that we have not seen. Because we know the reliability and the trustworthiness of the one who has borne testimony to those things. Do you see? In other words, the God who gave scripture, in this sense, to Moses, who gave an account of the beginning of creation, is the God who has revealed himself in his acts and his words by delivering the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt through very visible acts. The one who led his people out into the plains of Moab and so forth into the land of Canaan, led them to Mount Sinai. In other words, it is because the God who has revealed himself to us is shown to be trustworthy. Therefore, we can have absolute confidence in his word when he reveals to us things that are beyond our ability to investigate, that require from us hope, and that's what he's talking about here, Hope in things yet to come. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? In other words, then, this faith is not contrary to the evidence. It's not faith against evidence. But this hope for things not seen is a hope that's grounded in what God has actually done and revealed about himself in his words and his acts. So that for those things that are beyond our ability to see in the present, in other words, what he's promised for the future, or things that are in the distant past like creation that we cannot witness, we can have confidence that his testimony is true. And we can build our lives on that confidence or with confidence on those truths. That's the idea. So faith even there rests and trusts in the revelation of God based on his words and on his acts. That's the idea. Titus 1-2 says that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. And God has proven that to be true about his character so that when he speaks, he speaks in truth and we can trust him. And indeed, it is this kind of faith of the Christian who takes God at his word that has a faith that also and a belief that accords with the reality of what we see and experience in this world that God has created. It is the only way to make sense of such things as existence itself, why there is something rather than nothing, why we are here. The only 
revelation of God is given in Scripture that can make sense of the ideas of ultimate justice in this world. The understanding of grace in its fullest sense. It is the truth about God as He's revealed in Scripture and in Christ that the Christian believes in that makes sense of any of these things. The unbeliever who places his trust in common in our culture anyway, in science and behind the statement of Richard Dawkins, ultimately is left with an inconsistent or an empty worldview in each of these areas and can go no further and can rise no higher than a system of belief that in its end and its sum total brings all of human existence into the realm of meaninglessness, of meaninglessness, of emptiness, It has no ultimate answer for anything and isn't even consistent with itself. So faith, biblically defined, is not something against evidence. It's not something contrary to what is seen. In fact, it is the only right response and the only thing consistent with what is seen and experienced and authenticated in this world. As God has revealed himself in his word and in his acts. You know, faith takes God at his word, it rests in his revelation of Scripture, and ultimately in his revelation of himself in Christ and his saving work. And in fact, to be- refuse to believe in God's revelation of himself, in the words of 1 John 5, is to call God a liar. So, first of all, then, Faith is trust in God as he has revealed himself and it's consistent with reality. But let's look at this a little more personally and looking at a few more texts here. Faith, secondly, is essential then to salvation. Faith is essential to salvation. It is the consistent testimony of Scripture that none can receive the saving benefits of Christ outside of believing in him. And I'm going to go through this rather quickly. We're familiar with this point and I... I want to get to the last ones. But let me at least uh, mention this. Faith is essential to salvation. Faith is the means that God has designed to receiving the benefits of Christ's person and his work and participation in his ongoing life. So this kind of faith is faith, uh, faith in Christ as he's revealed in Scripture. You'll remember in John 5, 39, Jesus told the leaders... You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Can you finish it? But it's these that what? You remember it? Can you finish it? These reveal me, right? It's these that reveal me. So eternal life comes through faith in scripture's testimony of Christ. And it's a full testimony. We, of course, won't go into this. It's a testimony of Christ in specific prophecy, a testimony of Christ in pictures and types. It's a testimony of Christ in all the shadows of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all of those things of which Christ is ultimately the substance, the reality of them. They pointed to him. All of this being in the testimony of scripture. And we then Believe that testimony, and believing that testimony is essential to salvation. Let me give you just a few verses here. And again, I'm going to go through these rather quickly, but let me read a few of them. In John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, he says this in the prologue of the Gospel of John. Words you're familiar with. He says, But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become 
children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So receiving Christ, in receiving him becoming children of God, is directly connected to believing in his name. To believe in his name, the name of Christ, is to believe in all that God has revealed to him. To believe in the name of Christ is to believe in the Father who sent him. To believe in the name of Christ is to be connected to him in a way that those who trust him are called children of God. Children of God. Faith is essential then to being and a mark of being in God's family. In John chapter 3, again, I'm only going to read a few of these, but in John chapter 3, Jesus says this, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, relies on him, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might, that, that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there is the distinction between those who remain under judgment. It is those who refuse to entrust themselves to the testimony God has borne toward his son. And those who live within the realm and realities of spiritual life. Those who have heard the testimony and entrusted themselves to God's testimony of his saving work in Christ. And it is a testimony that is ultimately shown to be believed by what it produces. In verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the difference between being under God's wrath and being within God's saving mercy and grace in his Son is the matter of believing. Believing the testimony. Believing what God has revealed about His Son. Believing in all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. And it is a kind of believing that produces worship. Let me skip over to John chapter 9. And again, I'm just giving these for us to to hear, to run through our, our mind. He says in John 9, 35, Now this is the man whom Jesus healed from being blind. So Jesus, as you remember, healed this man who was blind then kind of left him. And then this man goes before the Jewish leaders of the time and they keep giving him this antagonistic interrogation. You know, who healed you? Who healed you? Were you really blind? They call in his parents. And the man is saying, "Uh, I don't know who healed me. I I can't explain what happened, but I know that I was blind and now I see. I was blind and now I see. And so eventually, later, Jesus finds him And Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? That I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. And the man responded, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Believing in Christ brought this man to a state of life, brought him to a state of worship. Belief in Christ is as well the evidence of the Father's love. Let me read one last verse here in John. 
He says, and we mentioned it earlier, but in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, after the episode with Thomas, John records for us, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing you may have life in his name. So how can a person be saved? How can a person be connected to all of the saving work of God in Christ? It is believing the testimony of Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. One last passage on this point, and then we're going to get to the next one. And that's this, Romans 5.1. In the language of Paul, in the language we're probably a little more familiar with, Believing on Christ is the means through which a sinner is justified. We've talked about that word in the past. He says in verse five or verse one of chapter five of Romans five, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified is to be declared before God. Perfectly righteous, accepted by God, perfectly in his sight as meeting all of his standards of righteousness and holiness. To be righteous before God is to say that every standard and command of God has been fully met without the slightest failure, without the slightest sin, even the hint of sin, without any defect, without any slight disobedience. It is to say before God's righteous standard, then this person who is justified is treated as if he had fulfilled God's holy command to its fullest extent. The fullest possible extent it could be expressed in humanity. God grants this standard and he declares this then to be the reality for everyone who believes in Christ. How then can a sinner be justified? He says here it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, because as we're well aware, Christ was that man. Christ lived before God, the Son of God in flesh, conformed perfectly to his holiness with exact, unreproachable, perfect, unstained obedience and love to the Father. And God has designed redemption then in a way that when we trust in him, when we believe this testimony, God counts all of that to be true for us. In other words, he credits to the believing sinner the perfection and the righteousness and the holiness of Christ to our account. This does not mean in justification that we are made righteous in our experience. It means, however, that we are counted as righteous based on Christ. In other words, the old reformers used to refer to it as an alien righteousness. What it means is that we are counted acceptable in God's sight, not because of anything within us, but because of something outside of us, namely the person of Jesus Christ. There is then an exchange that has taken place that God counts to us through faith. Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But the question still remains this. What does faith involve? It's not just enough to talk about faith because, and here is the real crux issue that I want to make clear now. 
really some of that was leading up to this, most of that, is this, that we still need to be clear on what biblical faith is because a problem exists. A tension exists within Scripture. And that tension is this, that God recognizes and in fact warns that there is a kind of faith that saves and there is also a kind of believing that does not save. There is a kind of believing that unites the sinner to Christ and then there is a kind of believing that only deceives the sinner sinner about their eternal state. And so that becomes the significance then of being clear on what does it actually mean then to believe? What does it actually mean to have faith in Christ? Let me first of all lay out to you the warning. Uh, Of course, these are in many places. Let me point you to John chapter 2 just briefly. It says at the end of John chapter 2, Now when he, this being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. He uses the verb there, pistuo, that's commonly used of genuine and true faith. He says here, many believed in his name. In other words, believed in his name, believed in the name of Christ. Interestingly, that is the exact same phrase used in John chapter 1, verse 12, about those who become children of God. So he says here that many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. Now here's the interesting part. Now John is actually making here a play on words. He's saying that while he was doing these miracles... Many who witnessed them believed on his name, Pistuo. But Jesus was not, in a similar form of the word, believing on them. He uses the same word there, Pistuo. They were believing on him. He was not believing in them. In other words, he was not entrusting himself to them. In other words, they had a kind of believing in him that did not actually connect them to Christ. That did not actually bring them into the benefits of Christ's life. So in Jesus not entrusting himself to them, the idea is this. That Jesus knew that their believing was not for the right reasons. And therefore he was not committing himself to them. He did not receive their faith as genuine. He did not accept it. And he therefore did not accept them into the saving knowledge of himself and his father. In fact... The kind of believing that they expressed was, is the transition into his whole discussion about Nicodemus. Nicodemus acknowledged many things to be true about Jesus. He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, We know that you came from God. In other words, you are not merely a man. You are a man who has in a special way the presence and the power of God about him. You are not merely a man, you clearly have a stamp of God's approval in some way that is evident to all. How is it evident? By the signs. Nicodemus says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, Jesus, I recognize that you in a unique way are a messenger of God. You in a unique way display the presence of God and the power of God among God's people. And yet, what did Jesus say to him? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
In other words, Nicodemus was acknowledging these facts to be true. He was, in a sense, just like the previous ones, believing in his name because of the signs which he had seen. And yet, Jesus confronts him with the fact that though you are believing these things, you are not yet a part of God's kingdom. You still need to have an experience within yourself that is described by Jesus as being born again, made new. You still need to have a spiritual reality that moves you out of darkness into light, that moves you out of death into life, that brings you from a true state of unbelieving to a true state of believing. So in other words, and the point I'm just bringing out here is that there is a kind of faith that believes in Christ, that acknowledges truths about Christ, that believes in His name and the language of Scripture, that is not yet a saving faith. It's not yet a real faith. So then what does a real faith look like? What is a real faith? Well, I think that the easiest way to... and the clearest way, and one of the most common ways that this has been explained, is to identify that real faith... A wholehearted faith consists of three different elements. Three different elements. Let me give them to you. First of all, in any one of these elements, let me just say, by themselves, however, is not saving faith. So you can possess two out of the three and still be unsaved in the condition of those to whom Jesus was not entrusting himself. The first is this, however, that must attend all true faith. There must be an intellectual aspect. In other words, there must be truths about Christ that are believed. As mentioned earlier, saving faith accepts the revelation of and witness to Christ in Scripture. In other words, the beginning of a real faith says that this testimony that Scripture bears to Christ is in fact true. What what Scripture says about Christ, I yield to, I submit to, that it is true. I believe it. It is right. It is not false. It is not an error. It is right. Christ is exactly whom Scripture presents him to be. That is the intellectual element. There is a sense in which this is captured by Hebrews eleven six, where it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for the one coming to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. The writer of Hebrews is there, is not calling for men to be general theists. In other words, just to believe in the idea of God. He's saying that the one who comes to God must believe God as he is revealed in his son. That's the beginning of the book of Hebrews. God has spoken to us in a lot of different ways in the past, but now he has spoken to us in a son. And a son who is the radiance of his glory. So to believe is to believe God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. To believe in God or any other sense of God, even if it goes under the name of Christ or the God of Scripture, that rejects the testimony of him as he's revealed in Scripture in any part, is then to not have a true and saving kind of faith. So the first part of a genuine faith is that there are truths about Christ that must be believed. There are truths about God that must be believed. Let me just mention this text to you. You're familiar This is what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 10. With a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. He says uh, later, how then 
will they call in or will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard and how will they hear without a preacher in other words god has designed it in such a way as matthew 28 told us that god's people are to go and to declare specific truths to be true about god that he is the son of god He is the Son of God, equal to the Father in every attribute of deity and divine glory and worthy of worship. That He is the Christ. He is the Christ. That His death was an atoning death. That His resurrection was a real and a physical resurrection. That His death was a death that alone satisfies the righteous requirement of God for our sin. So sometimes you've heard the phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Who's ever heard that? Y'all heard that? Preach the gospel and if necessary, say something. Uh, That is completely unbiblical and against everything that scripture says about the gospel. The gospel is not an idea. The gospel is a specific proclamation of a person, who he is and what he did and what he accomplished for sinners that must be believed. It must be believed. You cannot believe in a person of whom you have no confidence in any attribute about that person. Does that make sense? In other words, a person, there are things true about that person that make them reliable and trustworthy. And that's what we declare in Christ. The demons believe, James 2.10 says, and they shudder. Simon the magician, we won't take the time to go look at that. Believed, it uses that word again, pastuo. Believed in Acts chapter 8 believed in the message of Philip, was baptized as an expression of faith in that message, and yet was declared to be an unbeliever, one who was still in the gulls of bitterness, as Peter said. So there is an intellectual element, but that by itself is not enough. There's a second element. While there are truths that must be believed and affirmed as true in the testimony of Christ... Biblical faith also has an assent, an, a, an emotional element. A, I guess you could say this is like a subjective element of conviction. It's what we experience within ourselves based on those truths. Okay, So saving faith is not simply believing facts of the gospel are true. They must be understood in this way, this is key, as being true to you personally. As having a significance and a weight and a bearing on you personally. It's not simply acknowledging that scripture is true. It's acknowledging that those scripture truths are directly related to me, my well-being, and my eternal state. In other words, those truths must be seen in relation to yourself as having significance to you. It's not simply to believe that you are a sinner. I, like many of you, before being saved, acknowledged that growing up in the church. Yes, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Nobody's perfect, right? But that had no bearing on my conscience. That gave me no grief over my sin. In fact, I I quite willingly delighted in my sin. So believing those facts isn't enough. It is understanding how it relates to you personally. It's not just believing you are a sinner. It is to believe that your sin brings you justly under the condemnation of God. It is to have the sense and the significance of your situation as a sinner. It is to feel within yourself and to acknowledge the reality of God's condemnation on you as a sinner justly and rightly because of your offense against him. It is to be 
Not just aware that you are a sinner, but it is to be disturbed and shamed by the corruption of sin in your own heart. It is to hate that sin, as it were. It is to know that your soul is polluted by the reality of sin and to feel that within yourself. To feel the filth of your own mind and your own secret sins, knowing that the all-seeing, all-knowing God is perfectly aware of them and those are in conflict with His holy nature. That's what it means then to assent to those truths, to understand those truths personally for yourself. And this is the kind of conviction that's shown in the tax collector, you'll remember, who was standing temple praying some distance away, was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He understood not generally that he was a sinner. He understood personally that he was a sinner and needed mercy from God. But of course, that alone is not enough. Paul identifies that there is a sorrow according to the world that produces what? Death. That it produces death. So there is a third element that I would mention that's part of a genuine biblical faith. And this is the sort of the capstone of it all. This is the part that has to be true. If you simply acknowledge those truths alone of Scripture, that's not enough no matter how convinced you might be of their rightness. If you acknowledge those truths of Scripture and you even feel them to have weight and significance for your life personally, but it ends there in just a sad, sorry feeling of what a wretch you are, that's still not saving faith. Judas had a faith similar to that. There's a third element that marks the reality of a faith that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, that is the gift of God, and that's this element. It involves the will. Volition is a fancy word for it, but it involves the will. And this is the absolutely crucial element of faith without which there is no salvation. It is an actual turning to trust in Christ alone. It accepts the reality of the testimony of Christ. It feels the significance of those truths in in relation to ourselves. And it responds to those truths with a personal trust, a rest in, a confidence in Christ alone for salvation. To save you personally from your sin. To rescue you personally from the condemnation that you're rightly under. To gladly renounce all things to gain him. That's the kind of thing. In Scripture, often Jesus refers to this kind of response or calls for this kind of response with this language. Come to me. Come to me. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden with your rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, he promises. It is not simply to feel a conviction, but it is within that conviction to turn to Christ, to bring yourself under his loving lordship, as was mentioned as the theme of this message in your bulletin. It's a faith that sees in Christ all that the soul needs and desires. It's a faith that renounces previous loves out of love for him. It's a faith that turns from all other trust and trust only in Him. It's a faith that rejects the sin that has bound you and placed you under God's curse to gain and walk in God's righteousness in Christ. Trusting in Him, following Him, 
loving him, delighting in him. That is the kind of faith. It is a faith then that marked by repentance. Repentance. Now, repentance is helpfully defined in this way. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake all and walk in obedience to Christ. Repentance was the message at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. It was the command at the end of his ministry in Luke 24. He says this, that they are to go out and proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins to all the nations. It is a turning to the Lord. It was the very first command that was given at the preaching of the gospel by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Repent. Repent. It is a turning to the Lord. It is a flip side of faith. It is the other side of faith. He says in Acts chapter 20, he says this in Acts 20, 21. Paul says that God had called him to solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks, listen, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no faith where there is not repentance. There is no repentance in a biblical sense where there is not faith and trust and reliance on Christ. Now, we won't go through all these verses. We don't have time. But because they are so closely bound that sometimes Scripture only mentions faith and not repentance. And at other times, it only mentions repentance and not faith. And that is because both of them are in such perfect agreement and such necessary relation that none, one cannot be thought of without the other. So, back up to Zane Hodges, who says, and a whole camp, there's a whole branches of the church that hold to this, that saving faith means merely that you have to believe the facts of the gospel. Repentance is something that you should do later, but it is not required of the sinner to partake of all of the benefits of Christ's person and work. Does that make sense? It is to say they would hold that if you add repentance to biblical faith, you are adding works and you are corrupting the gospel. You are, in fact, a false teacher. A lot of people believe that, but that's clearly not, clearly not what Scripture presents as biblical and saving faith, even through the text that I just read. To say that Christ is Lord and the eternal Son of God in flesh, that He bore your sin, the sin that was your corruption, the sin that was the means of your judgment, the sin that's polluted your soul and brought misery into your life, the sin that will be the eternal ruin of every soul that remains in it. To say, I believe that message, and yet can receive forgiveness from it and have no antipathy in my heart, no hatred of it, no resistance to it, no, no battle against it is foolishness and is clearly not the message of Scripture. It's not the one who says I've come to know him, but it is the one who keeps my commandments, the one who keeps his commandments. Now, as we come into the table, there's so much more to say there, and maybe we'll pick this up, some other aspects of this next week. But let me just end with this thought, and this will just lead us into the table. And we won't have time, obviously, to say much more about this. But 
to say even all of that, to say even all of that about faith and about repentance and about trusting in Christ and having the sense within ourselves, not only of the truthfulness of these claims about Christ, but how they relate to us personally and to respond to them personally within our heart is really even underneath all of that. The kind of faith that Scripture talks about that is a genuine faith that produces that kind of repentance is the faith that is completely satisfied in Christ. In other words, it is to see in Christ, when you look at Christ, everything that your soul desires, everything that you want, everything that is satisfying, everything that is beautiful, everything that is good, everything that is hopeful, everything that you want your life to be directed toward. We don't do that perfectly, but it is to say, in the believing sinner who is truly united to Christ, the deepest part of our soul affirms with every part of our being that Christ is a treasure worthy of losing everything to gain. That his salvation and relationship with the Father through him is worth whatever it may cost. That obedience to him is the wisest and the best and the most glorious and the most joy-producing way to live life and to have value for eternity, for our life to mean something. That is what faith does. Jesus described it in this way. He who believes in me will never hunger. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. John 6, 35. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says later, for me to live is Christ. When we come and we take this bread, we are in faith saying that Christ is that to us. He is the one for whom we have lost, left all things to gain, to trust in, to commit our life to. That as we eat this bread, it is a picture in a sense of us feeding on him by faith. Relying on him, showing and symbolizing our complete reliance on him together as the body of Christ, as our only good, as our head, as our shepherd, as our savior, as the one our soul loves. It means then that we also, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, that we are committing ourselves and saying that our life is to given to him to live in righteousness and submission to him. That means then that we're also dealing with sin. So examine your heart as you come to this table and remember that it is for believers. And we'll say more of that in a bit, but let's pray as the men come forward and then they'll pass out the elements. Father, thank you for the great gift of your son in whom there is life, in whom there is hope. Thank you for how you give us warnings, even for us to examine our own hearts and to think clearly. But at the same time, and even so much more, you direct us to the great glories and the great privileges and the great hope that the one who trusts Christ has. The great forgiveness, reality of forgiveness of our sins. The great reality of a relationship and a fellowship with you, an eternal fellowship as Jesus, you prayed in John 17, that it is to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, referring to the Father. It is a faith that is living, a faith that is active, a faith that is satisfying. I pray that is the faith that we would know together as your people. And particularly now, as we remember your death and your resurrection and your ongoing life, in these elements. We commit our time to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.